In this episode, I travel to the Himalayan kingdom of Bhutan, where I visit world-renowned Bhutanese author Ashi Kunzang Choden at her family seat of Ogyen Cherling in the Tang Valley, Bumtang. Ashi gives a tour of her home, which her family have occupied for hundreds of years, including a rare look into a remarkable multi-story temple with rich religious frescoes, sacred artifacts, and entire floors dedicated to Tara and Guru Rinpoche. Ashi also recounts her remarkable life that embodies so much of Bhutan's recent history. Ashi was born into a family of feudal lords, witnessed the reformations of the 1950s, was educated in Catholic convents in India, and worked for the United Nations before returning to her family home, which she now runs as a cultural center and guest house. Ashi also recalls the spiritual advice given to her by Dudrom Rinpoche, reveals why her exposure to Christianity opened her up to the heart of Buddhism, and discusses the impact of feminist thought on her perspective of Bhutanese culture and her place in it. So without further ado, Ashi Kunzang Choden. Hello, my name is Kunzang Choden, and we are just about to enter my ancestral home and the property around here. It used to be um, home for what we call the Lam Chichi, which were the, what the uh, in English translation, the lords of religion. And they had also some political power that they could assert themselves. But over the years, since the 1950s, things have been changing. So we had to find a new meaning for this building. All right. So please, we can go this way. And um, this is the entire complex. And of course, the most important is the temple, which is here on the right-hand side. And we are told that all this complex grew around the temple, which may have been the original building, which was maybe established sometime in the 14th century. May, it may have been a smaller temple, but uh, in 1897 because of the earthquake that destroyed everything my great-grandfather rebuilt it in the same original place as the previous Lagang, uh, but then he added these and I think they will expand it in size and magnitude and um, by 2016 we were able actually to open it up to the guests and uh, we also became a foundation because you know there was no straightforward laws and regulations how a thing like this could function without some guidance or some kind of falling within the government mandate so we became a foundation and foundation was the main objective of the foundation was to preserve this heritage site and to continue with the religious traditions, you know, the offerings, the prayers, monthly prayers, and also to, mm, to reach out to the audience, Bhutanese audience, as well as beyond, to tell them what it was not so long ago, until the 1950s, and when the social reforms in Bhutan changed everything. And the most important building here is the temple, because everything rotates around this is the uh, apex you know everything rotates around the temple and one of the big events was the annual chichu 
So we would have all the monks here sometime in October praying over three days and then we would also have dances, you know. But all that we had to change because we were no longer able to mobilize the people that needed to come and do. And uh, now we have condensed it. Um, from nine days, we have condensed it to three days, but we still keep what is the unique aspect. We have a procession of animals, which is quite unique. So during the festival, on the last day, what we do is we take all the domestic animals in the parade around here, and the people gather around. Can we see inside? The main, main temple is upstairs and uh, the main icon in, uh, in the temple is of Sakyamuni as an eight-year-old prince and the, the uh, representation here is supposed to be a copy of the Jokhang in Lhasa. If you have seen this temple and this Sakyamuni, then you don't have to um, go to Tibet. So here is the main temple. So there's uh, Buddha as an eight-year-old prince. That's why he has all his adornments and his jewelry and everything. Because after, afterwards, when he wanted to seek the truth, he gave up all these. So you just see him here with everything as a prince. Okay? And here, of course, you see Guru Rinpoche, who, is a, uh, who we consider as the second Buddha in Bhutan. And next to him, we see this treasure discoverer, Dorji Lingpa, yeah, from whom we claim to take our uh, genealogical lineage. But before Dorji Lingpa came Longchenpa, and here's a Longchenpa who, who cr came from Tibet, created the eight links or the eight centers in Bhutan. So he's. Uh, really one of the most important figures for us. And Dorji Lingba came later, but uh, he had a long connection with his family. And this is his um, Tulku, or his reincarnation, Choktengempo, who came again maybe a 100 years later. And uh, of course, the one figure there is supposed to be 
Turchilingpa's father, father Sanam Jamso. Yeah, so it's really the trilogy of the um, Turchilingpa. All right. And up there we have all the different chortens and different um, different uh, religious personalities who the family worshipped or had some association with. And then, of course, on either side you see the Buddhist canons of Kanjur, all the texts that were there. In the old days, this was open. It still is, but in the old days, the temple was open, and anyone who wanted to read these could actually come and borrow. But nowadays, it's so easy to print these books. You know, they have it. Now every family will have at least, you know, um, these texts. And then, of course, one of the <clears throat> very important paintings here is the depiction of the Parto Thotel, once when you die. And I'm sure it's uh, according to Karma Lingpa, and I think you know very well that this is what a dying person, um, when the dying person makes the transition from life to death, Parto is the middle, and this is the experience that you have. So this is quite recent. People who came to visit the temple said, we want to see, you know, we can see statues of Buddha and Pemalingpa uh, everywhere, but we want to see what is the relics that are very important to this family. So we have a hat of Dorchilingpa, okay, in the center. Then, then we have the Vajra, which uh, is considered to be a treasure discovered by my great, no, he was my grandfather from my mother's side. So he was meditating, the story goes that he was meditating in a very remote area, and during kind of a sleep awake stage, somebody came from somewhere, a woman actually, came and took his Vajra. And he said, no, I need to have my Vajra. And she said, don't worry, I'll give you one. So the next day she came and gave that Vajra to him. This is another relic which we consider quite important, is supposed to be a tooth, tooth relic of Longchenpa. So this is something that we are now happy to sh uh, show to other people instead of keeping it in. The old, old belief was that you hid these things because then you didn't lose the sanctity of these things. But now we feel that people come here, they want to see what is important, and then we show them this. And uh, just recently, we celebrated, for the first time in our history, the um, Kuche, which is the death we observed the death day of Longchen uh, Jamba, And this year it was his 690th death anniversary. So we had a monk, a very distinguished and important monk, and he came with his 10 uh, monks. And we had, we observed the death ritual. It's still from there. And you can see the butter sculpture, quite beautiful, how they've made of Longchen And we will keep it as long as it stands. And you can see that uh, it's 
tilting to the side because of the heat of the butter lamp. But our temple caretaker very cleverly put a string to hold it back. So, you know, there's so much care and love for these things. And people want to, once you start, you know, showing how much you care and um, believe in these things, it kind of infectious other people also. So they also add to this. And I was really touched how he's trying to straighten that up. Because it's with butter, it just melts, no? And moves on. But in a way, it's also to remind us that everything is illusionary, transitory, everything will disappear, isn't it? But we want to hold on, and that's human nature, isn't it? So for me, I, I take it as that. And of course, you have the uh, uh, paintings, which are quite beautiful, of um, Sancto Pelri, Gurumbuchi, which is very special there. It's quite a beautiful uh, painting, Sancto Pelri. And the whole temple, all the, all the paintings are done with uh, mineral colors. That's why there's the depth and richness, even after more than 100 years. We have not done anything to touch it up. And, and these are just additional things that are caretaker. He doesn't want to throw away anything. Every time there's a calendar, he puts it up. Hmm? And of course, here is again a Guru Rinpoche depiction with his, um, with his uh, 25 disciples. You know all of this. And just recently, or just a few days ago, you went to visit the Lama, Namkaningpu. Namkaningpu was one of the 100, uh, 125 disciples. And here he's shown flying Namkaningpu, which literally means somebody from the inner sky. Okay, so there he is. And then all these 25, of course, beginning with Guru Padmasambhava's most important royal patron, Chisung Dutsun, okay? And all the others who were extraordinary people who could perform, you know, some kind of a miracle. Okay, so we go down without falling. Since um, we are, I'm already explaining the frescoes, actually, we are not supposed to, to take pictures and all, but you're not using the flash, and, and I know you will not um, misuse it, so I'll just show you one of the treasures, is the Shambhala panel, okay? There are only three of these in Bhutan. Um, one is in Tongsa Zong, one is in Paro, in one of the palaces there. And this is the most elaborate and uh, uh, biggest, um, I guess, the whole wall panel. And uh, I th you may know about Champala, it's the Kala Chakra. Hmm? It's for world peace. And here the belief is that you know, there will be a time when we will be embroiled in wars and destruction and, you know, caused by jealousy and aggression. I guess this is happening already. Huh? And that it's not the end, that there will be a beginning. This king who lives somewhere uh, surrounded by these snowy mountains will come and reestablish Buddhism and bring peace and harmony. So this is, 
it, all these depictions look quite ferocious, people killing each other and the destruction and things like this. But the hope of a new uh, social order or you know, order will come. And that is reassuring, isn't it? Yeah. Please uh, be careful when you come down, don't fall, because it can be quite a drop. This is what we refer to as the Tara Temple or the Dermalhagang, and it's um, a temple I feel really connected to, and I feel um, I feel uh, this. I uh, feel this is where I want to be. And most of the time, when I'm around, I spend some time with uh, Tara here. Here's Tara and her 21. Yeah, all her 21 manifestations. And what is so special about this Tara is that when she was Sculpt, the sculptor was the sculptor who was commissioned to make this statue was told to make the facial uh, expression based on one of my great grandmothers so it's very very special and dear to me and um, this is Vajra Yogini and um, she's also very much of course she's a deity and we have to worship her but i still feel like she's family because she's made of silver which was melted down from my grandmother's jewelry and they built this in her memory and uh, the, in uh, the interesting story is that she was um, made in tibet in parts and carried across over the mountains, brought here, reassembled, and put here. So she's one of the most important um, images here in our temple. Here is the, all the 84 Mahasiddhas, which is quite uh, remarkable. And uh, you know how um, genuine, focused concentration can uh, liberate you and you find Buddhahood. Uh, not necessarily people who put on the robes and go and meditate and proclaim themselves to be meditators. And this is very reassuring to know that every human has the potential to be liberated. Of course, here is uh, Avalokiteshvara in her many, many arms and many, many eyes. And simply we are told that Avalokiteshvara believes in action, but just not action for the sake of action, but uh, wisdom action. So there's an eye on every hand which tells you that you have to know, you have to see what you're doing. And uh, this is, uh, of course, now um, Buddha and his life cycle, how he began as a prince and how he, um, uh, how he 
had all the pleasures of a prince, but then he found something was missing, and then he, of course, leaves his palace and goes to seek the truth. Okay. I just closed the window. So this is uh, often used by the village people. They come here, make uh, performances, and especially for the ritual of Chu or chanting of the Tara Mantra, the 21 Tara Mantra. While we're here, Ashila, yeah. might I ask you, there's, this temple is, uh, there are many temples in Bhutan, mm -hmm. and many of them have stories mm -hmm. and associations with particular figures mm -hmm. or families. Mm -hmm. um, could you say a little about this particular temple, its association, its, its famous mm -hmm. founder? And also, how long has this temple been in your family? This, um, this, the temple, the original temple, I think, has been with the family since uh, maybe, uh, I said maybe 15th, 16th century. And some, uh, I think this one, since it was built in memory of my great-grandmother, so it's only from the 18, 1800s. Um, this was built in 1897, and so it's just over 100 years. But there must have been other statues. And what happened was uh, when the family built and sculpted new um, statues, what they did was they didn't throw away the other statues. So there are quite a few temples around in the valley who have statues that once belonged to Ogin Chiling. So they wanted to give a, because the space is limited, so they couldn't just throw in statues. So they said, now we want to build a statue in memory of the great-grandmother. And there must have been other statues which they gave to temples here and even um, they even gave away books. So they, it is materialistic to hold on to things, but they also believed in sharing and passing on things. And uh, I think this, this was quite, quite remarkable that they, uh, even uh, texts, you know, we have texts down in two, three temples which say that the origin was from Ukinshwiling. So they did a lot of they propagated a lot of teachings through printing of books. And even uh, as late as the 1980s, my uncle, the monk, he, he um, collected all the writings of Dorjilingpa and had, uh, through some contacts, made, established a contact with the American Congre Congress Library. And there was this very, uh, special man who was looking after American Congress Library in uh, Delhi. And he had all the books of um, Darjeelingpa printed. Because as I said last, just this morning, that Darjeelingpa was a prolific writer. And he was able to collect 20 plus volumes of Darjeelingpa's texts. But now people are finding more because he was 
as I said, uh, he was one of the crazy captains, you know, discovering uh, treasure here, discovering a treasure there. And what they did was the conquer, the intellectual, not physical uh, recovery of texts and uh, statues and uh, um, uh, holy objects, but the intellectual capacity. He was just getting and getting and getting. And what, what is really in interesting is that Tarjilingpa, although he's considered to be Nyingma, he was more a Rime person. So you will see in our library, we have books from every school of Buddhism. And um, that, so he was one of the, uh, maybe one of the, one of the first, not the first, but you know, early reformers. And he actually had a Bun tradition. So he came from a Bun tradition, combined this and then uh, created Ubin Chuling and until quite recently uh, while we did the what we call the Buddhist rituals here there was a shaman family here and it was always side by side because Darjeeling by himself was a bun and he allowed or he encouraged this bun tradition of shamans and uh, what were they called the Nenjungs and Pamos you know so uh, it's only recently that now the old people have died out and because they didn't use texts as such, that uh, whatever they performed, whatever they chanted was committed to memory. And once people began to die, these things were lost. So you know, it's quite interesting. In fact, uh, I have a story in one of my books, um, Tales and Color, about how these two traditions existed together. oldest building. It did not succumb to the earthquake in 1897. And uh, we always use this building for hosting monks. Hmm? And uh, now we are still um, at the stage when we're thinking how should we preserve it. Of course we have protected it from the rain, but how to display this house to show their association to religious uh, masters. Or do you want to go into the museum? It's open. Right here. So, um, this is the museum, and what we did was we didn't redesign or say that this is going to be. We said we'll just display it the way it was used. Okay, so the ground floor and the floor above were used as grain stores because we were um, subsistence barter economy. There was no monetization, no money, so the grains were the most important commodity. So the family dedicated all this space to keeping grains. And what, what was uh, the thing was that most of the people who worked for the family were paid in grains. We paid our taxes in grains, so all this was for grains. Of course, we still keep the source as they were, 
but we changed a little bit. This was also a green storage room. But when we made the guest house there, that room, we had to have a dining room. So the dining room, we used the loom room as the dining room and brought the loom activities here. Yeah. So you can see that. And uh, <laughs> so this, uh, this has different things. And this is our latest addition because this was one room that we had not done anything. And uh, since recently, uh, we thought we should do something about this. Lu Kangs, do you know Lu? The Nagas yes. and the homes of the Nagas. And we have on our compound, which we still have a link to, we have to feed them and we have to worship them. We have seven loos, including the one here. This is not rebuilt, it was here. Because these loos are mm, spirits of different characters. And this is a loo, Lukar. She's the one who is giving you know, abundance, protecting us, that's the one. And you can see on this hand-drawn map where we have all the loo. So people always ask, what are these structures? So this is quite important. And here is the most elaborate one, which is there, um, just outside the temple. And here, what is interesting is when we just do a little bit, what, who are these loos? And we have one who's called the Chamberlain to the Mahakala. Then we have one who is a teacher. You know, each of them had a special connection to this family. So we thought it's worthwhile to. We're still in the midst of completing it. But when it's completed, it'll, uh, we'll also have the kind of foods that we have to offer to them. How often do you have to make offerings? You know, the two big ones are in early spring when we believe they come back from India. Because during the winter, they go to India. Okay, They go to Budkaya particularly. Then uh, that's springtime. Then in uh, September, they leave, then we have to say goodbye to them. So we, but in between, whenever there's a special date in the month, it's Luthep, um, that those days you give them very particular food, like you like, they only eat um, popped buckwheat, no meat, they have milk, you know, because they all lose are actually subterranean, subterranean beings and uh, they don't, they're not used to the polluted human foods. So this is the loom area. Yeah, the, yeah this loom area. Until the 1960s, right into the 70s, we not only had to be self-sufficient in food, but we had to be also self-sufficient in clothing because you couldn't just go to the shop and buy clothes. And all the people who worked here, the family members, the taxes you paid, the, my mother and the other women before her had to produce cloth all the time to be given to people to wear. And um, because I think from my memory, my father went shopping once a year. He went once to Tibet. He brought whatever was needed from Tibet, Mundi salt. And the other time he went to India and he brought whatever he needed. And it had to stay for the, uh, for the whole year. So you only had to store, that's why you need these big houses. 
uh, big rooms and then we had about six, seven, up to eight people, women weaving and they were weavers family. M uh, many people in the village had a different relationship with their family. So they were weavers, they were horsemen, they were courtiers and they were um, farmers, they were the bull herders, you know, they all had this association. All this, of course, now was made null and void with the Reformation, social reformation, and we are not allowed to recognize people as being inferior to you. We are all equal. Mm. In the 50s? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you want to go up? Sure. Okay. So this level was also for food storage. And uh, you can see that these were the staple crops that were indigenous to this. Uh, the mustard was used as for oil, barley, wheat, and others. And this was what we had. Rice is very new because until 2003, we couldn't grow rice here. But after 2003, we realized that it's much warmer. Global warming has happened. So now people are introducing new crops, which is potato and rice. Okay? And the dietary habits are also changing. So I told you trading was very important because it was just once or twice a year. The most important thing we got was the salt because nowhere in Bhutan do we have good salt. So salt had to be f brought from Tibet. Along with the salt, they brought borax, which was used as a detergent. And then one of the most valued commodities that we brought from Tibet was brick tea. Yeah. And these were the ornamentations on the mule caravans. So this was like the horn, uh, yeah, sounding the horn, you know, when you're two caravans passing this way, they had to sound off and say, we are coming this way, can you make move, you know, because they couldn't see. And they had, horses had mirrors that shone and everything. And these were the other things that we traded with Tibet. We took them grains and we brought back salt. Any plant materials was highly valued in Tibet because straight from here is central Tibet, which is quite arid, quite arid and dry. And here was kind of the trades room. All the people working for us had to be provided tools. So these were all the different kind of tools that they Um, I told you that we only had locally grown grains, but families like us were privileged enough to have two estates. One in the temperate areas, this was a summer residence, and in the winter we'd go to the subtropics and we had a similar house and lot of property. Until the 1950s, before the changes, we, had, we would go every winter to the subtropics and bring back rice. So this was all for rice. And we were not only 
eating rice, but we were also exporting rice. And it's completely changed now. We are importing rice from India. This would be all full of um, rice. And all these baskets were rice containers. Yeah, so this was uh, what would be, have been the kitchen because kitchen was outside. This was also storage. So this was the kitchen. That was the distillation. We were always making brewing alcohol. But the important thing was that the alcohol production was in the hands of the mother of the house. So because the food grains were what was used for alcohol. So she would say, okay, this much for food and only if there's excess you do alcohol. And alcohol was not sold. So alcohol was not a big problem. Now it's a big, big problem because we have all these distillery made alcohol and liver cirrhosis is a big problem. Yeah. So this was the store, uh, we, we had all the storage all over the house, but here everything was brought and the manager or the mistress of the house had to every day measure out how many people working and how many, uh, how much salt do we give, how much butter do we give. So every morning it was a big function to do that. And I remember my mother coming and measuring, okay, this much rice for so many people. And I say, if the social system hadn't changed, this is what I would be doing today, measuring food, saying, you know, give this much to this one and this much to that one. There's uh, much more, there's two floors up this way, but um, I think we should also, I think you also have questions that you might want to ask of what we've covered so far. So maybe we'll find a windless, quiet place and do a <laughs> talk, answer questions. Down. Yeah, there are people, just leave it, there are people in there, you don't want to lock them up. <laughs> they have to, they have to be with the ghosts. I think here is less, less windy, so we can come in here. Mm, and yeah, I think here. What do you think? Here, yeah. we could just talk here. Okay. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay. So, uh, thank you for that wonderful yeah. tour. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd like to ask you a little bit about your family. Yeah. And. Uh, the many centuries you've been here. Mm -hmm. And also I'd like to ask a little bit about your life mm -hmm. and personally. And you've right. seen many great changes in the society of Bhutan yeah, yeah. and had many interesting experiences. Mm -hmm. And also maybe we can say something about the future oh, and how okay. you see that. Mm -hmm. uh, could we perhaps begin with your, with your family? Can you say something about your family and what does, uh, what does this mean, Ashila? Oh, okay. Um, the, um, Everybody calls me Ashi, and the La is actually, we wouldn't use it. I think it's a very uh, Tibetan influence, and people are using, it's a form of respect, La, but the, uh, we wouldn't normally use it, Ashi La. Mm, it's an honorific form, and uh, it's, it's very, very strange. And my brothers always say, why are you called Ashi, and we don't have the title of being a Dasho? It's just that I think... Um, as I get older, people don't know how to address me. So actually, it was a term used for elite people. 
It doesn't mean uh, uh, the big um, mix-up is that even our queens and our princesses are called Ashis, but it was for women of social status. And, uh, and in the old days, in this old system, I think the women were called Ashis, but La is something quite new. Okay, so my, this is my paternal home. This is where my father's ancestors came from. And my father being the oldest in his, among history, inherited the house. And in those days, inherit the house, the property and the responsibility. And in those days, uh, they were quite particular about families from such households not marrying anybody. So my mother actually, my father and mother had never met. My father was 21 years old and my mother was just 18 years old and the family got together and made the match and she came from the valley of Chume, Tarpaling, Chume from there. You, you saw the big zong? Mm. Did you see on the valley? Yeah. She was working with the um, queen of Bhutan there and they arranged it and she had, she was sent here as a bride. So it looks like our family uh, had m more males and more patriarchs and women were brought in from different things, different areas, you know, they were brought in matchmakes and they were not to be marrying anybody else. Hmm? So uh, she was here and uh, the, the, they both died very young. My father died at the age of 37 and my mother died at the age of 32. That was just after we had gone to school in India. And in those days, there was no way of communicating. So we were in India, there was no postal system. You can't imagine how people functioned without, you know, having to take out your uh, smartphones and saying, you know, your father is dying. So, you know, my father and mother both died while we were in India. And because they didn't think the children were, um, it was important to tell the children, so it was quite tragic that I came to find out my father's death only a year after, and my mother's death also several months. But even though our house was without our parents, I think the most impressionistic and the most emotional links to this house was the nine years that I spent here. So even though we were in India, I was in India from kindergarten right after my college for 14 years and quite far I always call, refer to that as my cultural exile years because I was just thrust into this culture and I had to learn and I, at the same time I knew this was where I belonged, this was my family. Could you tell the story of why it was you went to India, the reforms that occurred in the 50s mm -hmm. when you were a child yeah, 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 yeah. and the whole culture changed before yeah, your eyes exactly. and then now you're going to India, what happened yeah, there, yeah. why was that? Yeah. I think um, the Bhutan in the mid-1950s was still an insular, inward-looking, medieval kind of a society. And when the third king, the grandfather of the present king, came into power, he said that we cannot remain so. We have to change. We have to be more forward-looking and connecting with the rest of the world community. And how do we do that? Because until then, education was confined to the monasteries. People who went to study in the monasteries went there so that they could read and write, but for religion. 
then there were few people who could read and write and could function as uh, clerks and you know could keep uh, documents and like this. But other than that, there were no schools for children. Then the third king said it should be education, open to all. Until then, it was mostly the boys who went to school, and then he was very uh, forward-looking in that, and he was very advanced in his thinking. He said, all children, boys and girls, should go to school. So I am not quite sure how I got chosen, I mean, how my family was chosen. It's possibly that the prime minister of Bhutan at that time under the king knew my parents and said, you know, you should send your children to school. And they asked for two boys from the thing. But uh, my father and mother, they were not ready to part with two sons at the same time, and they sent me instead. So I was sent to school by default, not because they said, oh, the girls should be educated. So this was, we were to go to schools under the government of Bhutan scholarship. We were sent to some of the best schools, and we were to come back and to act as the nucleus of the new modern um, bureaucracy and the how to run the government and everything. So after 14 years, we could quit at uh, grade 12 and come and work here. We could get jobs aplenty. And those of us went on said we want to do an under degree, we could also do that. And when we came back, we could choose. It's so, so, so different. Now we have so many young people who have done so much academic studies and specialize and they come back and they do not what, know what to do because there are too many people, uh, young people who are educated, specialized, everything. And now when I think about it, we had it so, we had it so easy. We could choose anywhere to go and work. And I feel the pain of today's generation, unemployed, you know, the, the, the word to use that word unemployed and being um, not earning anything, being dependent on their parents. But it's not because they choose to be, it's just because the th how, that things, how things have happened, you know. And uh, I was, uh, I, I already told you, sent to one of the best schools, like many of my colleagues of my age. And we came back and we were expected to do whatever we had to do. I opted to teach. And um, I was um, teaching for a while. I was starting with uh, teaching uh, some kind of adult education for young farmers who are learning to train in modern um, agricultural methods. And uh, I spent a year with that. And then later on, I went to regular school and taught there. And within my lifetime, the things that have changed is just amazing. When we went in 1962, it was in February in 1962, from here until we reached the border town where we could go into India, it took us 12 days. So I was a nine-year-old girl. My older brother was 12. Two of us made uh, our journey on horseback and walking. And my father had sent some trusted servants to be with, be with us. So we had a mule train with our rations and whatever we needed. And none of us could speak anything, no, no language beyond our language. So um, my father had um, looked for a translator. We needed a translator who could organize and take us all the way, you know, go to 
Calipo, which was the exit point, find the connecting transport, take us in the train, take us to Kalimpong. We had no idea where Kalimpong was or where the train station or how it functions, what are these people like. So it was a real big change in our life. And of course, the school experience in the beginning was very difficult because we were not prepared. I mean, we were not prepared what kind of people we were going to be with. And as I said, I was thrust into a convent where people looked so different. They spoke another language, you know. They had blue eyes and their faces were covered like this. And it's quite a frightening experience. So I remember it was always, I was always like this, you know, so afraid holding my hands in front of me and so afraid to speak, so afraid when somebody passed. And it took me a long time that I could actually communicate. And so then finally it became easier and easier and I began to begin to respect these nuns because they were really dedicated to educating people. And uh, uh, I was, I was, I did not suffer or I did not mind the fact that this was Catholic, that we had to, we went to church, we were uh, having religious studies and things like this, but we were not pressured to do anything. And I think it was just a subtle way of opening us up for there was another form of religion kind of uh, thing. But they didn't say you have to become, you have to convert, or there was no nothing of conversion or anything. And then I felt myself opening up to Buddhism through Christianity. Uh, I found so many similarities in what... Um, how uh, Christians believe about different things and um, especially the life of Christ and you know how he uh, all the forced oops I keep on getting this I guess you can uh, so this is how I happened then it I came back to Bhutan I always although we were in India for so many years and we were out for another you know after after school I met my husband we had the children we went to study in the US um, but uh, I always wanted to come back here. I always felt one foot was here, and I felt that I had to come back and do something. And my, my brothers, they didn't feel that much. So uh, fortunately, my husband agreed, and uh, one of the conditions of our marriage was that I would not leave Bhutan. So that's why we're here. Now we are, we are spending a cook the golden years, of the sunset years of her life here. Yeah. I'd like to know how you met Walter. Um, but before that, um, you spoke earlier about opening up to Buddhism through mm -hmm. Christianity. Mm -hmm. And you've spoke also, you were telling me earlier, that your experience at the convert, convent, mm. was three convents you mm -hmm. were educated at, were very positive, yep. actually. And mm -hmm. um, that much of your um, uh, what's meaningful to you, mm -hmm. uh, you felt you learned there, mm -hmm. actually, even mm -hmm. though in a different mm -hmm. cultural and yeah, religious yeah. context. And even Dujor Mimperche yeah. advised you mm -hmm. uh, in Not that direction. Not to differentiate, yeah. Could you say something a little bit about that, a little more about that, uh, your love of the uh, church services, the mm -hmm. quiet reflection, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what Dujor Mimperche said to you, yeah, yeah. and this relationship between Christianity and mm -hmm. Buddhism that you discovered? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I, as I told you that... Um, I spent 11 years of my life in a convent, uh, in different three different convents, and I never felt the pressure to uh, that the nuns were discriminating me because I was not a Christian, and 
uh, that. Uh, in fact, I've, I, especially in the days when I couldn't speak with anyone, I found it very calming to go to Mass every morning, listen, and I found the similarity of the incense and the priest coming, the state prince, the priest coming and the serene surroundings, very comforting. So I went to church every day. And in the third convent, I actually moved on and joined the choir, as I told you. I was not a singer, but I was pumping the choir because they had that old uh, organs. And uh, in my six years in the third convent, I never missed a church service because I liked it so much. And uh, we didn't have religious studies as such, whereas uh, you know the Catholics had Catholic, what catechism they called it, yeah. We had moral science. And these were really universal values being taught to us by the nuns. And one of the nuns who had one, once a week, one period of moral science, I think she was, had the biggest impact on me. And already in the 60s and 70s, things that I didn't understand, even respect for the environment, about displacing, you know, I can remember examples of examples of her telling us how just for people to be entertained and uh, uh, have fun, bringing polar bears to the heat of Calcutta and things like that. She was telling us these kind of stories, and we didn't realize that it was just a it was polar bear brought there and brought in Calcutta, sleep uh, you know lying on the block of ice, but we. Now when I think about it, she was telling us what mankind was doing to, you know, the environment, shifting people, doing things like this. And then I think the moral science was very, very important for me from there. And I think I learned a lot of universal values there. But I also had the opportunity to meet a lot of um, many great lamas who passed through here and many lamas with whom, even in Tibet, whom my ancestors and my uh, family had links to. For instance, my uncle went to um, Minduling in Tibet. He was there, and then we had the constant flow of the Tibetan lamas coming here. Then later, much later in the, um, yeah, it was still in the 60s, my, we, I, I had already made, met Dinjumrimbuchi. And uh, but in within a few years, my uncle actually married into the family Dinjumbuchi's uh, daughter. So we were living with Dinjumbuchi. I think now, and I say, what an opportunity for me! How could I be so blessed? But those days we didn't. Huh? He was having his teaching, and we were just going in and things like this. And I can just remember once walking into his room and asking for. Uh, money loom, you know, asking him what what, what does it mean to say Baza Guru or and something like this and that's how close but I didn't know how to value it. Now I value it. His daughters were about my age, we were going to the same school and once we even the daughters asked, you know, how do we deal with this? What so who's Jesus Christ? And Dunjum, like he was talking to like uh, he wasn't teasing us or anything, but he was saying you'd have to respect everyone who teaches you or who has a message which is for the good of all. And so don't ever think that, you know, because we have this distinction between Nangba, the insiders and the outsiders, don't think of him as a uh, 
outsider and yourself as an insider because these are all people who are, who are teaching for the betterment of the, the you know human life and the value of human life and that the more I think about it the more I find these little gems that were planted in me still has some guiding uh, principles in how I choose my life and uh, I think um, uh, even when I married my husband in the 1970s, after I finished college, I was working um, for a project that the Swiss were doing. I was like a teacher for their young farmers, and I was marrying him. Um, he was foreign, he was Swiss, but he was also a Christian. He was a Protestant, but we never really pushed religion on each other. He sort of sort of just absorbed Buddhism without proclaiming to be a meditator or follower of this and that. And there was one particular monk who died who we were very close with. Um, he was the incarnation of the Pamalingpa's heart son. We were connected with him through reincarnations from a family. And my husband really sort of had a strong bond with him. And he said, he's my Lama. But, um, what was quite surprising is that my husband's family also, who are farmers, especially his parents, and who had never traveled outside Switzerland, they were very accepting. They didn't say, are you going to church? Which uh, denomination do you follow? Or something like that. They never, never asked me. So they just let us be. And this was the same kind of um, mm, policy that we passed on to our children that uh, we are not going to force them to be any uh, anything that we want them to be, that they have to choose. And they went to schools, again, in mission schools in India. What were they now? They went to an international school which was run by Presbyterian uh, Americans. Huh? And uh, they also never declared themselves to be Buddhist, but uh, they they live Buddhist lives. And I think that's how, that's how we should do. We should not be pushing each other to join your faith and that this is false and this. And so, and I think that goes back to, um, to my um, experience in school. And uh, I can still remember now that you asked me, I can still remember that um, when I was in school, there was a shop which called the holy shop where they used to sell rosaries and holy pictures and things like this i used to go and collect and bring them all to my home here and give my mother and my uncle this and that so please put it on the altar <laughs> and uncle uh, uncle who was a monk he never said no this is the alien he just says you know i'll keep it here you know, he never threw them away or i don't know what he did but i decorated his uh, altar as a little girl with Christian rosaries and things like that. So it was really a very um, open and a very inclusive kind of a, um, environment that I grew up. He never, never said that you are, mm, you are being influenced or you're becoming Christian. In fact, uh, he often read Namtar's biographies to us, but not to say that I'm going to make you a Buddhist. But uh, just to, I think that he was his way of saying you should also understand that there are a lot of 
things that you can learn from Buddhism through the lives of especially these Delums. No? Delums are the people who die and come back with things. So, yeah, so this, is, this is how I, uh, how I grew up. And I feel very comfortable here, but when I go to uh, Europe, I have no problems to walk into a church, kneel there for a few minutes and light a candle. You know, I, I don't feel any problems with that. Yeah. Thank you. You mentioned to me earlier that feminism mm -hmm. or feminist thought mm -hmm. um, uh, had influenced mm -hmm. you, you also qu quite a lot. I'm wondering if you could say something about that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one question leads to the other. Um, you know, when I was born here, I was a very sickly child, and I was um, often having blackouts and dying, what they call dying. And uh, my parents were really concerned, and then when one monk came here, they said, please do something with her. And she's not going to have a long life. Maybe there's some remedy you can do. They turned me into a boy. Because what they said is that this house had very few surviving girls. So maybe she should have been a boy. So until the age of nine, until I went to school in India, my hair was cut like a boy. I dressed like a boy. And I was given a boy's name. You know, this... Um, are you familiar with this very ferocious-looking deity, Jigje Doji? So my name was Jigje, and I was treated no different, and it cured me. I didn't have this fainting uh, fits anymore. So see, you know, they just said I was the wrong person in the wrong body kind of thing. So this, I mean, it was funny, and it was, I felt a little kind of special. But I always felt very, very strongly feminine, okay? And then I went to all girls convent <coughs> and as if that was not enough I went to college that was all girls and they were very protective about you know you shouldn't do this you shouldn't do like this you didn't you know uh, you know it's don't look at this man or don't look at that man this was quite strong in the school and the only men that we actually saw were the altar boys but I'm I didn't go to the church because of the altar boys okay <laughs> or the priests I went because I felt that so so this was the thing, but, and, but I accepted everything, that we were different, we were treated differently, our expectations were different. And throughout my years in school, all my relatives and well-meaning people, they just said, you enough, you've grown standard five, that's enough for you. You've done standard six, enough. What do you need? You can read, you can write, and you don't need to get educated. No, this, and this really, it was kind of a challenge for me. I didn't know what it was. But I said I want to go further just because of that and see what it was. So after college, um, coming from this all-girls school and college, I went, I left. And it was after I was in my early 30s when I went to the university in Nebraska. Yeah, I chose just for fun some women's studies classes. And that was a big opening for me. There was a lot of discussion. I had a very good professor who was uh, a strong feminist. And she, I had classes with her that really made, shook me up and, you know, say, think like this, re, uh, look at this like this. And uh, so that was a big influence. 
Then later on what happened was I began to get interested in texts and books that were written by Western feminist Buddhist women. And that was the turning point in my life. And I, I, I could relate to them. They were coming from a scientific point of view and they were looking at our society and all the things that we accepted and didn't question were coming uh, hitting me now is is it really like this did you really you know so i began to question myself think of myself um as being somebody who's quite fallible somebody who could still change somebody who could look at things differently and i think even today i i read you know um books on Mishitsoge and Machi Clapton written in English. And that has really a lot of influence on me, inspiring, opening up new uh, avenues, showing me new ways, avenues to go ahead. And I think uh, I don't have many, many more years, but I still feel that I'm finding out about women. And I'm particularly interested in the silence of women here uh, you know you you hear about big saints this saint that saint but we hardly have any women and that is, is really appealing and I just told you that I'm really particularly interested in one woman from the locality here who actually was a yak herder she lived in the mountains and she went and disappeared for several years and she came back as a completely changed woman, a big yogini with her look of long hair. Bhutanese women traditionally keep short hair. She came with long hair. She had a Gurumbuchi's trident and she was huge and she just sort of, she was, you know, completely somebody else. And I feel really inspired. So I'm really wanting, I'm on my journey to see where, how, what inspired her. And, uh, the little incidences and little stories we hear about her are just amazing. Like uh, the time when she was approaching her death hour, she just called her daughter and said, just sit here by me. I'm going to die. Don't be afraid, you know, things like this. And these are, I mean, they must be some amazing people, no? So to honor them, to find out about them, to... and. Uh, hopefully document so that people and women especially find out that they are amazing people among us or they were and they may be still huh? and this has been in many ways uh, the inspiration for a lot of your writing you you're yeah, one of yeah. you're one of Bhutan's most widely read and uh, no, loved authors in, in English yes. in English because there are a lot of Bhutanese writers who are writing fantastic uh, um, literature in Tsongkha and in Cheke, but I was lucky to be one of a few women published in uh, English. Yeah. Could you say something about your writing career? You began, I believe, collecting uh, mm -hmm. oral folk tales yeah. and writing them down, and, yeah, and yeah. it's since gone many ways, uh, many different directions since yeah, then. Yeah. The folk tales. As I said, we grew, I grew up in an um, oral society and we didn't have books, we didn't have the cinema, we didn't have anything to watch. So the only way we could uh, entertain ourselves in quiet hours was to listen to stories. 
and people told stories everywhere, traveling, sitting out. And I heard a lot of stories during my childhood. And in the years when I was in the convent, the first year when I was in the convent, and then I couldn't speak with anybody, and I feel completely isolated and alienated from everything. Every night I used to tell the stories to myself, you know, because there I felt very comfortable. All the characters that I knew came dancing back into my life, and I was happy, and that was the only time that I could relax. So when my children, who were born in Bhutan and went abroad, went to, went to the United States. And when they were, so the children are very um, quick and sensitive and they realize that they are not really Americans. They always ask, who are we? You know, how do we tell our friends and teachers who we are? So that was the time I said, I have to write down the stories. So I wrote it down for my children because I said there must be other children who are going through the same trauma as the same experience so I wrote it down for them but I got a little more ambitious and as, as I worked on these stories more and more I said well publish it maybe there's you know other children who'll read it and that's how it started that's the whole thing how it started yeah and I, I my novel is about a woman yeah and uh, uh, then I have a following story, which is also about women's stories. And I write for younger children now, because I feel you have to start them young. You, uh, they're all reading Western stories, Grimm's fairy tales. They're reading all these different, watching Peppa Pig and uh, programs from India. And you can't suddenly say, look, we have our stories. I think we have to, uh, you know, give them um, the opportunity to widen their um, experience of reading and stories by inserting our own stories and telling these children you don't have, I mean, it's good you look at stories from others, but you have your own stories. Take pride, this is your story. And in fact, the last story that I wrote was for my granddaughter at the age of when she became uh, four years old, when she was going to be four years old, she was very interested in mermaids and she was always interested in Little Mermaid and Princess Mermaid and Ariel and all. So her mother and I, um, her mother especially said, can't you write a story of our mermaids here? And she was very specific and she said, don't make the mermaid depend on a prince coming to her into her life to make her happy. She said, make it a strong woman you know, somebody who is active and involved and things like this. So my mermaid story is based on the, we, we do have mermaids, they only that they're not fish, they have uh, snakes, half snakes, okay? So I wrote a story about that for my granddaughter and tried to insert a theme of how we are polluting our water sources and you know and then that their life inside the water and the mermaids live there and we can anger them by dis indiscriminate pollution and things like this. So some traditional beliefs about mermaids but also present day contemporary beliefs of what we're doing to destroy these water sources. Um, so and now she's uh, five years old and she she knows we have mermaids, our own mermaids, yeah. Is there anything you'd like to say to uh, finish this interview mm -hmm. to uh, mm -hmm. close here? Yeah, I hope uh, um, 
well usually i don't do this kind of things but since you asked me and you are so nice about it i thought i'll talk, talk and if it reaches and gets <coughs> some people get interested in what we are doing here i think it's um, i think it's good for us especially now coming out of the pandemic when everybody was so insulated and running away from everybody to be able to reach out to people wherever you're going to show this and people say oh that's you know that's the place i would like to visit and learn a little more i think that's important so thank you steve thank you thank you for listening to another guru viking podcast for more interviews like these as well as articles videos and guided meditations visit www.guruviking.com